Good morning. I had a couple of people uh, before the service ask me why I'm still wearing this jacket because it's so warm in here, and I just want to say you do not want me to take this jacket off uh, because <laughs> Ellen gave me a hard time about this. I forgot to put deodorant on today. Uh, so I'm leaving the jacket on um, and keep a healthy distance. Yeah, you're welcome. Keep a healthy distance, uh, but I'll, I'll still shake your hand and everything like that. So uh, anyway, so today is a, is a special day, not just because it's 4th of July weekend, but because we're beginning a series on the book of, of Romans. Oh, and first of all, I, I, I almost forgot this in the first service too. Welcome to community. Uh, and also those who are joining us on live stream, whether you're tuning in to, for the first time or you've been coming to church for all your life and this week you just couldn't make it. Uh, I pray that this message meets you where you are. Um, so, so welcome and welcome to community and thank you for, for joining us. Now this, this series on the book of Romans is called Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude. And I, I, I thoroughly believe that whether you have been a Christian for uh, 40 years or you've just joined the church last week, that this series has something for all of us. Some things will sting, some things will be convicting and challenging, some things will be encouraging and uplifting. But I truly believe that there's something for all of us in this series. And preaching out of Romans and really just reading Romans is kind of like standing on the side of a mountain during an avalanche. Uh, so you have all this content coming at you. The, the, the snow is just pummeling down the, the side of the mountain and it's burying you. But at the same time, you realize that each sentence, each verse is meticulously crafted for a purpose like each snowflake is. And so you dig. You dig deeper. Preferably up, uh, but you dig. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to do uh, today. I have the opportunity to preach on the entire first chapter of the book of Romans, one of the most daunting books of the Bible. Uh, and so I'm going to read every single word of it, obviously, uh, instead of choosing one, one, one verse to go at. So we're in for a roller coaster this morning. And what's going to happen is uh, I'm going to give some historical background to the text, some literary background to the text. And we're going to work our way, cutting it up into sections so they're a little more manageable, trying to understand what this meant in ancient times 2,000 years ago. And then we're going to go backwards through it chunk by chunk, asking how it applies today, all the while thinking about what does it mean? Here's the question I want to be on your mind. What does it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? What does it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? So that's basically what's going to happen, and I want to start with just a, a simple question, and I'm sure most of you will probably raise your hand. How many of you have been in an airport during maybe a busy season, like 4th of July, Mother's Day, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Go ahead and raise your hand. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. Yeah, I see, I see hands. Or how many of you have been in an airport before? Yeah, I want to see all the hands. There it is. Uh, so in an airport, especially an international airport, uh, you have people from all over the world, from different cultures coming together uh, to, to get somewhere else, right? But nevertheless, you walk into an airport and you, you maybe meet someone from Taiwan who doesn't speak English or from South Africa who has an awesome accent or from, from China or whatever it is, all these cultures kind of collide or clash and collide together in an airport. And on a busy day, you have long lines, it's uncomfortable, sweaty, hot, kind of smelly, kind of like me today. Uh, that's what an airport is like, right? Ellen and I got to go to Houston this past week for a, a test for med school for her. And the airports were fine. Um, we, we flew into Chicago on Thursday night at around midnight, so we didn't get home until 4 a.m.-ish. Um, but on our flight back, we flew southwest, which means it's first come, first serve. Uh, you basically get to go and pick your seats, and if you're lucky, you get to sit next to each other. Our flight was full. Ellen and I did not get to sit next to each other, but we did sit in the farthest back possible. There was one seat behind me, uh, and I think she was in the farthest back, um, back row. 
Well, the flight went great. You know, it was kind of hot and sweaty, but it was, it was fine. No, no complications or anything like that. Uh, but when we landed, there was a family of five, right about in the middle of the plane on the wings. Uh, this family had two children, three and four years old-ish, and then a baby. And the baby did great the entire time. The baby didn't make a sound, right? And the, the mom is um, you know, walking the baby down the aisle during the, during the flight just to keep him or her calm. Uh, but once we touched down, this baby erupts. <laughs> uh, and, and not just like, a, just like a, not like a whining or a whimpering. I mean like volcano-style eruption. This baby is screaming. Absolutely screaming. And so we land. Unfortunately, there was about 12 planes waiting to take off between us and our gate. So we're waiting on the runway. Uh, the captain gets on the speaker and says, hey guys, I need you to stay seated. And the mom is trying to comfort this baby who's just screaming. The mom is uncomfortable. Everyone around them is uncomfortable. We're trying to extend some grace here because it's not her fault. We get off the plane, and the, the three- or four-year-old boy is walking without a shirt on off the plane. So th- this kid is shirtless, walking, and just like stomping and crying. It turns out the, the baby had, <laughs> had puked on his older brother. Uh, and so, I mean, this kid did not have a good flight sitting next to his baby brother. Uh, but, th- but that's Rome, and this is an odd illustration, but walk back 2,000 years to Rome, a city five square miles with a million inhabitants, people that live there. So you walk in, and it's hot and smelly. It's packed like, like a full airplane. You might smell some puke, right, like from this baby. Uh, but, but you walk into Rome 2,000 years ago, and there's a million people living in this city. And they're from all over the world, not just, uh, not just from the area. People could be from all over the known world, from different cultures and traditions and religions. So you walk into Rome, and it's kind of like walking into a busy airport or boarding a busy plane where you might come in contact with cultures that aren't your own. You might feel a little bit out of your comfort zone, but nonetheless, these cultures come together. So that's the context that we're speaking into. Rome 2,000 years ago had a million people, the first city in the world to have a million people in it, which is, which is kind of cool. Very diverse cultures, very different religions. Basically, uh, if you were religious in Rome, you could worship however many gods you want and whichever god you wanted as long as you included worshiping the emperor. So you could worship um, the god of fertility, uh, the, the agricultural gods, whatever god you wanted, as long as you included the emperor. So that would not bode well with uh, the Jewish population and the Christian population who are, are fierce, fiercely monotheistic. Luckily, if you didn't put up too much of a fuss and make a big deal about it, you could, you could get by. And that's, that's kind of the culture that Paul is writing into. What's different about this letter is that Paul, Paul usually, he plants a church and then he follows up trying to correct a certain situation that's happening in the church, right? Whether it's uh, people being oppressed or people sinning or people taking communion wrong, uh, he's writing into specific situations to, to help sort of guide the path to, to a solution. What's different about the book of Romans is that Paul did not start, he didn't plant the church in Rome. In fact, we don't really know who started it, but it's there. So Paul's writing to a church that he, he didn't plant, uh, one that's kind of sprouted, and we get a, maybe a hint of where it came from when you read Acts 2. Um, there was a, literally it says there was a group of visitors from Rome listening to Peter preach. So the idea is maybe they went back to Rome and started this church. Uh, nonetheless, Paul's writing to this church 
for a couple of reasons. Indirectly, he's trying to deal with some conflicts between the, the Jewish Christian population and the Gentile Christian population. Uh, the Jews who grew up in the faith and grew up studying the scriptures, following Yahweh, and the Gentiles who, for lack of a better way to put it, just didn't know what was going on, basically, and just heard about Christ, and they're all in, right? But they don't have that sort of background. They may have worshiped pagan gods or whatever it may have been. So Paul is sort of writing to, to ease those tensions and to talk about those tensions, but at the same time, he wants to, 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 to raise this church and help them mature in a way that leads to righteousness, that leads to God, and, and he wants to help them grow into Christ, and so that's why he's writing this letter. This letter is so meticulously crafted because he's laying out the gospel that he received from Christ. So that's where we are in the book of Romans. So, we pick up in chapter 1. And if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews, I think it's page 1090. Um, this will be the ESV up here. Yours might be a little bit different, uh, but pretty similar, I'm guessing. So, let's start reading. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take a minute. So basically what we're getting here is who Paul is and who he's writing to. And in the very first verse, uh, Paul's identity, I want you to notice this, Paul's identity is wrapped entirely in who Christ is. I'm Paul, I'm a servant of Christ. That's the authority that I'm drawing from. What's interesting though is Paul really did have authority in the church. In the Jewish church, in the Jewish tradition, uh, he talks about this in his, in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, he, he says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Honestly, if Paul's writing to a, a partially Jewish Christian audience, why wouldn't he draw on the authority that he would have in their tradition? And I think that says something about Paul's character, that he's, he's grounding his identity in who Christ is, that it's not about the accomplishments and achievements that I've done, it's about who Christ is and my relationship with him. Something I, I realized is that when I introduce myself, uh, whether it's up here or you know, on the video announcements, you know, it's, I'm Andrew, I'm an intern, I'm a, an intern here at Community Reformed, or I'm a student, um, or I'm a Grand Rapids citizen, uh, it, it's almost never, I'm Andrew, I'm a servant of Christ. For Paul, it was. And that's the authority that he's, that he's writing this letter from, and that's, uh, that's the, the identity that he has. Uh, and then who he's writing to is obviously the church in Rome, but he says it in this way, to those of you who are called to belong to Christ. Oh, I just kicked my water down. To those of you who are called to belong to Christ, indirectly Paul is saying, I identify with who Christ is. My, my main identity is with Christ. And he's saying, you ought to too. Your identity should be based on who Christ is. Those of you who belong to Christ. 
And he's also calling them to be saints, which is a fancy way of saying set apart and holy for God. So off the bat, just in the introduction, uh, you get this sense that he's sort of challenging the church in Rome uh, to, to, to seek God and to seek their identity in Christ and to, to really seat that in Christ. Right off the bat, that's, that's our introduction, and we keep going. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, this section is about why he's writing the letter. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness who I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faiths, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is writing this letter. First of all, he's letting them know, hey, I've been praying for you guys. I've been giving thanks to you guys. It, the news has been spread around the world that the church in Rome, the, uh, the, 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 the center of secular life, Rome, the church is flourishing, the gospel is flourishing. I want you to know that I've been giving thanks for you and I can't wait to come and see you. Paul is setting, setting the church of Rome up for his visit. Basically, he's saying, I want to preach to you. When I get there, I want to have something, uh, something solid to work from. So I'm writing this letter. I'm laying out the gospel for you, the gospel that I received from Christ. That's what he's writing in this letter. So he's writing to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I want to come visit you. And I want to serve you. I want to help you grow up in Christ. That's, that's why he's writing this letter. But I had a question. Uh, Paul is a church planter. So why is he eager to preach the gospel to a church who's already received the gospel? That's not typically on his radar. But I think the next two verses sort of answer that question. And, and these next two verses is sort of the thesis for the entire book of Romans. And it goes like this. So Paul, wh wh why do you want to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome? And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? It's flourishing. The church is, is growing in Rome. Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? In Rome, much like today, uh, what's treasured and cherished is, is, is power, accomplishments, achievements, anything you can do to get a leg up on your neighbor. That's what Rome treasures. And Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that says our Savior was crucified and came to serve and not to be served. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, his life is marked by gentleness, patience, and kindness, and humility, which is totally countercultural 2,000 years ago and today. And this, this gospel uh, that he's excited to preach that he's not ashamed of is for everyone, to the Jews that have become Christians and to the Gentiles who have left their way of life behind and joined the church. I feel like he's saying to the Jews, Listen, you guys were in need of a Savior just as much as the Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone who believes. 
That's you. The gospel is for you. And to the, to the Gentiles, you were adopted into the family of God. Don't be anti-Jewish. But this gospel is for everyone. And it leads to a life that's lived by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. My next question, Paul, what do you mean by that? What do you mean the righteous shall live by faith? What does it look like to live a righteous life? What does it look like to live by faith? And he doesn't respond in a positive way. He, he tells us what it looks like when we don't. We keep reading. Verse 18. This is a, a longer section. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and right, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This has got to be one of the most uplifting and encouraging passages in all of Scripture. This is the one, right, that you read to your kids every night before bed or that you recite on your drive to work. No, uh, this, is a, this is a difficult passage. But I think what Paul is saying to the church in Rome, like, look, this unrighteousness, this unrighteousness you see day in and day out in your city. You are surrounded by unrighteousness, but I want your lives to be marked by righteousness. I want you to be set apart. Church in Rome, Romans, know that God is not the author of the sin that you fall in love with. Let your lives be marked by righteousness, not unrighteousness. And that's, that's the whole first chapter of the book of Romans. So now I want to work backwards through it. We're going to skip verses 17 and 16 and come back to those at the end. But I want to apply this to our lives all the while asking the question, what does it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? What does it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? So in verses 24 to 32, you have this list of sort of sins, unrighteousness. And I think what Paul is saying, part of being unashamed of the gospel is realizing that no sin is heavier than another, that you can't choose a sin to demonize over another one. And also that we are all sinners. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is to seek a righteous life. 
We are not saved by our works, but they are marks of the gospel's transformation in our lives. Paul's saying, seek that life. And I'm encouraging you today, whatever stage you are in your, in your life of faith, in your walk with Christ, whether it's 30 or 40 years in the faith you've been here or you're brand new, I want you to let that transformation in and to seek a righteous life. What does it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? Part of it is to seek a righteous life. Verse 18 to 23 talks about creation. I think part of being unashamed of the gospel is realizing that creation is good, but it's not God. That we cannot and should not put our faith and trust in created things. And that sounds really sort of lofty, uh, but, it, but it hits the ground when we say there's something in our life, God, if I just have this one thing, I'll be satisfied. I'll be content. If I just have this one promotion, if I have a certain level of income, then I'll be content and satisfied. And I can start tithing. I can start giving and volunteering, giving my time away. Once I reach this certain level of income, God, once I get that, I'll be content. That's putting our faith and trust in created things. Or maybe, it, maybe it's a, a house or a car. Maybe it's a relationship. God, if you just give me a wife, I'll be happy and content. Part of, being, part of being unashamed of the gospel is saying, I have Christ, and that's enough. Now, this, this, this can get serious. God, if, if you can just give me and my, my wife children, we'll be content. And there are women around the world, and maybe women in this room, in this church, who have never been able to have their own children. And I know that's painful, and I don't want to diminish that pain. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is saying, I have Christ, and that is enough. Or maybe it's, uh, God, if I lose this or that, then my life is over. If I lose this job, what have I got? If I lose my work, what do I have? Or if I, if I lose this college scholarship, uh, what, what, what am I doing with my life anymore? Or if I lose the ability to play football, what am I doing with my life anymore? These are forms of idolatry when we, when we put our faith and trust in things instead of the creator. Part of what it means to be unashamed of the gospel is saying, I have Christ and that's enough. We're skipping 16 and 17. We'll come back to that. Verses 8 to 15 where Paul kind of says why he's writing. I think part of what it means to be unashamed of the gospel is to have your relationships marked and decorated with prayer. Paul, before he even meets this church, is praying for them and giving thanks for them. So part of being unashamed of the gospel is to, to decorate our relationships with prayer. You have friends, pray for them. Give thanks to God for what God is doing in their lives. If you have enemies, and we all do, pray for them. Give thanks to God for what God is doing in their lives. Part of what it means to be unashamed of the gospel is to have your relationships decorated with prayer. I know this is a lot of things at once. You don't need to write all these things down. I want you to find something that itches, find something that pokes a little bit, and hold on to that. And we keep going. We get to verse one through seven where Paul says who he is. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is identifying with the crucified Christ in a culture just like Rome that cherishes and treasures accomplishments and achievements. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is first and foremost being identified with Christ. We get so wrapped up with which political party we're in. 
or whether we're you know, pro or anti-guns, or uh, our, our anger towards uh, the education system. We wrap ourselves up in these things. Which school we go to? Some of you are MSU fans. Some of you are U of M fans. Some of you are Ohio State fans. I can't believe I said that word in this sanctuary. But the point is, we tend to identify ourselves with things that aren't Christ, and I'm encouraging us. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is to identify ourselves with Christ, first and foremost. Finally, we get to verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not that Jews are more important, but chronologically, it was was offered to them first. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is offered to everyone. Part of what it means to be unashamed of the gospel is extending the grace and love of Christ to those who don't deserve it. I can hear the the, the Jewish Christians saying, sort of in response to Paul, listen, these Gentiles, they they don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't know the things that we know. They don't smell like us. They don't worship like us. They don't belong with us. And I'm sure that was reciprocated from the Gentiles as well. These these Jewish folks, they're rigid. They have all these traditions that they have to follow. They're so focused on, on, on this Old Testament thing. They don't belong with us who have found Christ brand new. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we have people in our minds maybe subconsciously even, that we think uh, the, the grace of God doesn't apply to them. You know, the, God doesn't love them as much as he loves me. That can be as simple as, you know, the, the guy who cut you off on the way to church this morning, where in that split second you're like, oh, he is definitely headed, no, okay, I can't go there, I can't go there. God loves him as much as he loves me. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is recognizing and extending the grace of Christ to those who don't deserve it because we don't deserve it. Extending the grace of Christ to the cashier who's meticulously counting every penny while the line at Starbucks gets longer. And you think, there's no way the grace of God could apply to them. They voted for Hillary, or they voted for Trump. There's no way God could love them and more than he loves me. Maybe you don't explicitly think that, but subconsciously that's sort of the thing that, at least for me, that comes up in my heart, but it gets, it gets serious really fast. And it gets heavy and difficult because we can, we can talk about those sort of surface level issues that we have. But the, but the grace of Christ, the gospel, is extended to the man down the street who mistreats his family. And as Christians, part of being unashamed of the gospel is extending the love of Christ to that person. Or the parents who allowed alcohol to rip their family apart, the gospel is for everyone, and part of being unashamed of that gospel is extending the grace of Christ to that family, to the mother who just had an abortion, and to the baby, to the, to the, to the immigrant, illegal and legal. The grace of Christ is offered to everyone, and as Christians, being unashamed of the gospel, part of that means extending that love and that grace to people who don't deserve it, because we don't deserve it. To the high school kids, who contemplate suicide or attempt suicide and to the bullies who made them do it. The grace of Christ 
is offered to everyone who believes. And being unashamed of the gospel means extending it to those people who we don't believe deserve it because we don't deserve it either. Let's recap. I don't want you to write all this down. But I want you to grab onto one of them. As I've wrestled with these last few weeks, I know that they they have seeped into my heart and convicted me. Being unashamed of the gospel is, is to seek a righteous life, to be set apart. Something about our lives should look different. Being unashamed of the gospel is saying, I have Jesus and that's enough, not worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is to mark and decorate your relationships with prayer, whether that's your friends or your enemies. Part of being unashamed of the gospel is to identify yourself first and foremost with Christ in his death and resurrection. And finally, part of being unashamed of the gospel is to extend the grace of Christ to those who don't deserve it because we don't deserve it. The questions that I've been struggling with the last couple of weeks Am I ashamed of the gospel? Based on what Paul is telling us in the first chapter of Romans. And admittedly, I think sometimes I am. So I want you to to think about this question. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? And I know I'm not supposed to leave a sermon on such a low note, but I really think this has the opportunity for transformation. Are we ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you are good. You're a, a good, good father who saves the unrighteous who don't deserve it. Lord, your grace is enough. Help us to, to ask ourselves, really, are we ashamed of your gospel? Are we willing to be set apart? Are we willing to seek righteousness? Are we willing to extend the grace of Christ to those who don't deserve it? Lord, I pray for transformation for me, for our congregation, for the community, because we know that as we we live unashamed of the gospel, that is how your kingdom is spread through your spirit. That the gospel has the power of resurrection. So Lord, transform our hearts with your gospel and build your kingdom on this earth through the saving grace of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. And it's in your name that we pray, amen. Amen. And all that, I encourage you, if one of these things is, is, is gnawing at you and, and sort of poking you out, talk with your spouse about it, talk with your family about it, talk with one of the pastors about it. That's what we're here for. With that being said, in the words of Paul, I urge you, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received with all gentleness, patience, and humility, bearing with one another in love, and that's tough, (laughs) eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Go in peace this week. Amen.